Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. And I hope that um, if you're here, you're here to listen to an angry man. Um, this is Professor uh, Steve Evans. This event is in association with Cambridge uh, University. Um, Cambridge has, for the last three years, been putting on daily events uh, in Hay. And my name is Jane Davidson. I'm Pro Vice-Chancellor for uh, Sustainability in the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. Um, uh, so I work out of uh, Carmarthen and Swansea and Lampeter and Cardiff and London. <laughs> so, not Cambridge, although Steve has occasionally inveigled me over there um, to uh, work with him on the sustainability agenda. But the reason that you're all here this morning is that Professor Steve Evans, who um, leads on sustainable manufacturing in Cambridge, is a man who wants to transform industry and create new paradigms for what success looks like. A man who loves good design, but hates waste. A man who believes we should all rise to the need to create an urgent response to transform the performance of manufacturing within planetary limits. A man who wants to drive industry to ensure less water, less energy, better materials, fewer resources for better outcomes, who wants us to understand that becoming a little bit more sustainable is not enough. How we deliver value needs to change fundamentally. We need system-level transformation. What would it take to create an agenda of total efficiency of technology, value, and system change? Steve is on a mission. Mission zero. And he may be angry, but he's also an optimist. So, ladies and gentlemen, be prepared to be challenged, frightened, and uplifted by Steve Evans, the angry optimist. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Um, good morning, everyone. How many of you have been in factories? Just put a hand up. That is a very unusual percentage in a public audience. That's fantastic. So I'm hoping you're going to ask me very difficult questions afterwards about how to make these things work properly. Factories make everything. You look around us, we're in this beautiful space in the middle of a field. You'd imagine it's just sort of popped up. Somebody put down a seed, and about two years later, a tent appears. Wouldn't that be great? Well, that's actually one of the futures that might happen in manufacturing. Biology is going to come and change manufacturing. We might be growing tents from seeds in 30 years' time. But right now, the image of factories as the producers of the stuff of life is accurate. The image of factories as places that consume vast quantities of resources water and materials to produce that stuff. The unintended consequence of the Industrial Revolution is that we're eating mountains and we're creating pollution. And I'm interested in stopping that happening. What a factory is going to have to do if we're going to learn how to live within planetary limits, that's 
the research that I'm embarked on. And I just want to be very clear about the scale of the problem. About a if we just take the very narrow dimension of sustainability, which is climate change, about one third of all climate change impacts come from factories and the energy that they demand from power stations. About a third comes from cars and about a third comes from buildings. And everybody seems to know and have an opinion about what we should be doing in cars and buildings, but not so much about industry. This is really good for me because it means that there are very few competitors in my academic <laughs> sphere uh, and it's easier to shine. What's the solution? Well, I'm a researcher. <coughs> if you're going to solve a problem, you have to understand that problem in depth first. We've, we haven't got a lot of time together, so what I'm going to attempt to do this morning is share very small pieces of evidence that we've collected in our research, that some of my colleagues have collected in their research, to describe the current situation. I believe there'll be some surprises in there for you. Having understood that that's a, the smallest part of the iceberg of evidence and data, I'm then going to move forward and make some conclusions about what that data means, and then hopefully spend some time talking about the implications of that. If, that's a, if that conclusion is true, then what is the set of actions that we need to take that will move us forward to a sustainable 2050? And hopefully, we'll have a little bit of fun there, but uh, I'm not really an optimist. I'm just angry. <laughs> uh, you can choose. What makes you angry? And I am going to demand some answers. You can put your hands up. What makes you angry? My favorite of all answers in a public sphere was when uh, a student, you know, a 19-year-old second-year student, said, the way my flatmate eats cornflakes. <laughs> there are bigger issues. <laughs> so, does anybody want to beat the cornflakes? What makes you angry? Or do you want to pick up on one of these, you, sir? Non-repairable goods. Non goods. Mm. And we have an argument, don't we? We have people, companies that make smartphones, saying that they're nice and small and light, because they're easier to put together when they're glued than if you put a screw, which is able to be disassembled. We call it disassembly in my world. But that screw takes up much more space than a little spot of glue. If you want small and lightweight, sir, you're going to have to have things that are unrepairable. And when we want really tiny things, we understand that. But refrigerators and washing machines seem to be, it seems to be an unnecessary uh, saving of money, and that's the reality here. For, what, for smartphones, it's about saving space. When we go to the larger products of our daily lives, it's about saving money, not about space. And I think it is an entirely changeable scenario. Uh, glues that unglue. Um, we're not going to talk about smart materials today. I have a colleague who works on smart materials, which is this is a very beautiful material. Uh, smart materials change their uh, crystal structures under different conditions. And if you put, he's, he's got a smartphone, and he's put it together with a screw, 
but it's a screw made of this rather special material. And if you warm it up to 90 degrees centigrade in a microwave, the screw changes shape, so the thread just disappears, and the whole thing falls apart instantaneously. That's the sort of thing that will allow us to take things apart in the future more easily. The same with glues that can be more easily dissolved, and they change their properties at certain temperatures or in certain environments. But at the moment, we're a bit lazy. Any more air conditioning? Uh, I'm afraid that I sort of leak sweat above 20 degrees centigrade, which is why it's great to be in hay. <laughs> I love air conditioning, but I hate the inefficiency with which we deliver a comfortable environment. One of the pieces of work that we've been doing and in slightly involved in in the car industry, um, I didn't know this, it's quite fascinating, the, your comfort level is determined by the temperature of your year lobes. Did you know this? How warm you feel is more determined by the temperature of your year lobes than any other part of the body. So if you can put the air conditioning jet directly onto the year lobe, <laughs> you can use less than 1% of the energy and make people comfortable. Well, that's what we want. We want to be comfortable. Right? So let's do it for 1% of the energy. And I'm looking for answers that are not 5% better, but 99% better. And I hope you'll allow me to offer up my... I almost don't want to show this because I get so angry. The International Energy Agency creates an annual report on where the money flows are going in the energy system. And in their report of 2014, I think, they were looking at the 2011 data, $523 billion of taxpayers' money went to oil and gas companies to cut fossil fuel prices. I'm going to suggest that that industry is already lobbying to reduce subsidies on renewable energy while receiving the single biggest donation from taxpayers in the world. I don't know how many of you are billionaires. You will understand what that number means. For most of the rest of us, it's pretty meaningless. It's 0.7% of global GDP. So that's 70 cents in every $100 of the entire world economy is money that flows from taxpayers to oil and gas companies. And if you want to make me angry, you just point to this number. Thank you. Thank you. Right, it's a hard one to beat, that one. I'm going to try and move us to solutions. But to have a solution, you have to have a target. And uh, Jane has suggested, you know, the world is under stress. I'm not going to emphasize any of the environmental science. But if we do enjoy having the stuff of life around us, then Industry has to learn, by 2050, to deliver four times more output than today. And it's not because you and I are going to be more wasteful, it's because more people are acquiring our lifestyles around the globe. And I'm not going to deny them that. But we've got to do that while delivering a 100% reduction in greenhouse gases and a 50% reduction in the resources that we take. We've got to do that in a clean and healthy and equitable manner. Those are the measures by which we assess success in moving industry towards sustainability. 
So I'm going to start, this is a personal angry session now, you can all leave the room, uh, with things that drive me crazy. And the one thing that drives me most crazy of all is just being wasteful. It's not waiting for the science fiction technology that's going to save us in the future. It's about doing things stupidly today. I tend to describe my research as helping people to stop doing stupid stuff. Um, and I'm going to try and tease that apart today because we, we have a narrative that suggests that industry in particular wouldn't knowingly be inefficient. Why would it be inefficient? I mean, that's not profitable. I'm not, and I hope I'm going to provide some evidence that that may not be the case. So what do we mean by efficiency? If we just take energy and climate change, just to narrow that down, which is the most energy efficient factory in hay? Well, I'm sorry, all the factories of hay don't know. Which is the most energy efficient brewery in the world? We don't know. What is the most energy efficient moment in our production schedule this week? We don't know. Wow. This is interesting. If we don't know something, how can we manage it? There's a lack of information and understanding. This is ignoring the question about what is actually possible. What is the thermodynamic minimal that it takes to make a car? I don't know anybody who's made that calculation. People have tried to do it for some sectors, but not for anything as complex as a car. We sort of know how much energy it takes to produce a particular car in 2017. And that number is thousands of times higher than the thermodynamic energy it takes to produce that car. So there's lots of room for significant uh, improvement. I promised to show you some data. This is uh, an attempt to look at the car industry in, in particular and their energy performance of their factories. I'm sorry that the graph is not that easy to see, but collecting this data is a bit of an art. And what we found and been able to plot is the percentage annual improvement, that's the y-axis, and the number of years different factories have maintained that improvement. And there's a dot in the middle of the screen for the Toyota factory near Derby they've been able to maintain an 8% improvement every year for 14 years. That puts it on a 77% ISO curve. That means they can make four cars for the energy that it used to take to make one. And you would ask the question, how did they do that? Well, they just stopped doing stupid stuff. They didn't spend lots of money. They engaged their workforce, they engaged their brains and their creative minds, and they just slowly stopped doing lots of things and collected data. It's a fantastic story, but there's no silver bullet. We have to apply ourselves. We tried to make a calculation. By the way, the other dots are celebrated factories, because you can't get data from really bad ones. The other dots are factories who are willing to publicize how good they've been at energy efficiency. We've made them anonymous because they don't look so good when they're compared to the Toyota story. So these are the good ones. And we made a calculation. What would happen if every factory in Britain moved halfway from where it is to the best in its particular sector? So 
For no cost, we generate 10 billion pounds of profit, create 300,000 jobs, and take out 4.5% of the UK CO2. Just by stop doing stupid stuff, please. This makes me angry. It also offers an opportunity for optimism. There's no barrier to this. Why can't we do it? And we should be able to do it. Uh, for those of you who know the numbers for Hinkley C, do you know how much that's going to cost and what percentage of CO2 that's going to take out? That's about 28 billion pounds and about 7% of UK CO2. Well, that's a lot of money for about double this. And this is only halfway to best, remember. As a nation, as a planet, we are failing to be efficient. One of the industries that's under most intensive scrutiny is the cement industry. It's the second most CO2 intense producing sectors in the world. And this data set is trying to ask a question, well, what, what's the best day this year in which we've made cement? And on the left-hand side is the amount of CO2 produced in the first of the two major production stages in a cement factory. And each blue dot is a production batch. Some of you may be shocked to look at the axis on the left-hand side. On the very worst day, we could be using and generating 435 kilograms of CO2 to make one ton of clinker, the intermediate product. On the very best day, it might be 190. Did many of you think that it was going to be that far apart between the best day and the worst day? It's shocking. And this is an industry that's under greater scrutiny than almost any other. Now, we understand the reasons why this is so, and we believe we can find ways to reduce the CO2 output of the cement industry worldwide by 20%, technically 19.7 to be accurate, for free. Let's then ask, why is that not happening? And I'm thinking, this, because this must be driving you crazy. You, you're sitting there, I hope, going, there's a better lecture in the tent next door, or, <laughs> or he keeps giving me information, which is a bit annoying, and <clears throat> why is that happening the way it's happening? And I'm going to apologize and try to explain. We're interested in root cause. And you must, as a researcher, have some speculation as to root cause. It's difficult to operate experiments because we can't change history. I'm a manufacturing engineer. I've worked in and worked with many factories. On the left-hand side is the amount of money that British industry spends, firstly, on the blue line, which is wages, and on the red line, which is parts, materials, energy, water, and waste. Every minute of my training is on the blue line. We're really good at it. We are absolutely brilliant. When a person is not working and is idle, everybody notices. But I also notice when they reach 10 centimeters too far to pick up a tool, and I go, hey, move that tool 10 centimeters closer. So they look like they're doing something useful, but it's not at its most efficient. I'm really good at that. We are reducing that in the UK at 3.2% per annum. 
We've been doing that for 250 years. It's the gift that keeps on giving. If we can still do labor productivity at 3% per annum, why is it we can't do it for energy? Because we haven't even started that journey. So it's an interesting question. How, could, how good could we be if we focused that same set of skills on energy reduction, on material reduction, on water reduction? Frighteningly for the UK, the red number's going up at the moment and is likely to go up further in the next three or four years. So while people like me are busying ourselves getting the blue line down, the red line is sort of spiraling out of control, and that's not good for industry. So I've given you some data. I'd like to offer some conclusions and some hope for the future. Non-labor efficiency is much lower than labor efficiency. The variation in performance for energy and water and materials is much greater than even people who work in factories would predict. In most sectors, I'm going to suggest possibly all, the actual minimum energy and water and material it takes to make something is not known. What's the implication for that? And I'm going to suggest the first implication is that we should really just get on this horse. Right? We should just get on it and learn how to be efficient. And we've seen the Toyota story offering 8% per annum. Let's make that our target. Why doesn't every industrial activity in Britain have an 8% per annum target starting now? Because that buys us time. It's not enough to take us all the way on our journey, but it does buy us time. Now I want to move on to what the future might look like. I hope I've produced some evidence that efficiency is not what it should be. And if we did improve at 8% per annum for the next five years, that would make a significant change to UK performance, both commercially and environmentally. It would also create those 300,000 high-value jobs, by the way. But what else is needed? Yes, we learn to be efficient, but we're learning to be efficient in the current system. And our research also goes into two of the other three areas that are required, we believe, to get us towards that sustainable 2050 future. So we do a lot of research on value innovation and on system innovation. Uh, we, in our research group, don't do a lot of research on technology. There's people all around the world trying to bring new and clever technologies through, and they will be part of a future solution. But if we're going to rely on the laboratories of the world to invent technology, and then allow them to enter a system where people keep doing stupid stuff, it may not be such a smart move. So I want to talk about what the future might look like if we were innovating those four things. One of the things that we're looking at doing at the moment, I don't know if you belong to the world of virtual reality or what is now called AR, augmented reality. Has anybody tried to put on one of those glasses and sort of walked through a three-dimensional world? <laughs> Imagine that somebody with my skills, <laughs> I'm very good at identifying when a person is being inefficient. Imagine I could see energy flowing around a factory. Imagine I could see water, they're in pipes. We, don't, we physically can't see them. And I believe one of the problems is if you can't see it, you can't decide whether it's doing a good thing or a bad thing or a wasteful thing. And I believe that one of the changes that will happen 
technically, is will allow people to see waste. That's coming very, very quickly. How many of you recognize the London Fire Brigade retired hose? It's no longer any use as a fire hose. And now I have a model. I'd like Jane to stand up and present her belt, <laughs> which is made of London Fire Brigade hose. <laughs> the company that makes that belt is called Elvis and Cressy. They also turn that belt into this product. Some of you may recognize Cameron Diaz wearing a similar belt to Jane. I, I prefer Jane. <laughs> <laughs> What's the price? What's the value of this, what's called a messenger bag? <clears throat> Go online, please. Fantastic product. It's 230 pounds. It's not a five pound scrap waste off the top of a rubbish heap product. It's 230 pounds. It has a story when people say, Jane, that's an unusual belt. She says, yes, it saved lives. That's what imbues it with such value. And we have to understand how to extract value to the maximum from everything around us. And a lot of our research is about that. How many of you in the room are fast fashionistas who can't wait for tomorrow because you're going to go to the shops? Do you know this data is really scary? The average fast fashionista spends between 50 and 80 pounds every week buying clothes. On average, they wear them one time. Hands up if you have a son or daughter. You're a bit worried about them, yes? And, and you know, we think, what's the solution? Is, is, is there some sort of, uh, you know, program we can put them through? <laughs> because it seems very difficult. And we know that we're fighting the way that the high street is working, that they're winning that fight. By the way, the average fast fashionista has 13,000 pounds credit card debt. This is a real issue, right? And yet, next Saturday, they'll go out and spend another 50 or 80 pounds. We've been doing some work with some major high street retailers, and we've been modeling different ways of doing retailing. Imagine that your sons and daughters had a card with a number 20 on it, and that allowed them to have 20 items in their wardrobe at home. It doesn't sound like much. But if you could then take something out of that wardrobe, walk down to the high street and swap it. I've got a pair of trousers I don't want to wear. I'd like a shirt. I'd like some socks. I'm going to swap it for a tie. How much does it cost to buy this 20-unit card? 100 pounds a month. So can we agree 100 pounds a month is less than 200 to 300 that they're currently spending? Can we agree that they're going to get access to more clothes? The real question is, is it profitable? it's more profitable. And if you'd run the numbers, the reason it's more profitable is we grow half the cotton. So we are delivering people clothing with half of the land, which we can now move over to food production. This is a global solution. It will happen. I'm not sure that the retailers are ready for this yet, amazingly, because it is more profitable. I don't know if representatives of River Simple are in the room, I didn't see any faces. Stand up if you're in the room, River Simple. There we go, Fiona's over in the corner there. 
uh, wonderful company that's trying to innovate the system of delivering mobility. So if there are really tough questions, you can ask Fiona. <laughs> I am associated with companies, so I've got to demonstrate some bias here. I'll be honest about that. This company believes that you need to innovate the system of delivering personal mobility through seven very specific changes. And I'm just going to talk about one. When you access this car, you don't buy it. You pay per month and per mile traveled. But the really interesting thing is the company puts the fuel in for you. They pay for the fuel. Now, if they do that, they directly align their interest with yours and with the environment. So the less fuel they put in, the more profit they make. And because of that, they can invest in a system that delivers this sort of level of performance. 250 mile per gallon cars. Can we all agree that's pretty special? Wouldn't it be great if Britain was the best, the first place in the world to do this in quantity? Cheaper to own than a smart car. And really frustratingly, even more profitable. But that profit has to be patient. You're not going to get that profit from a big check the day that you make the car and sell it to the customer. It, that profit's going to accumulate over time. And that's one of the systemic changes that we're going to have to learn as business if we want to achieve amazing numbers like this. And I just want to finish with my last example on system innovation. This particular example is from the island of Mallorca. And I love this. It's a combination of sort of high-tech and low-tech, a combination of global and local. Mallorca as an island does have quite a few farms. It has a lot of tourists. And it has a high demand for cleaning products. So Echover, the cleaning product company, is building a factory there. And they are looking at this system where a satellite goes over the island in order to provide what's called precision agriculture data. Looks at every three square meters of agricultural land works out what it's making, looks at the weather data, and says, in two weeks' time, that crop will be ready. Great, they'll sell that crop. But we also know what waste will now be available from that farm. So ahead of time, we have a little bit like the Friday night fridge problem. right? We can predict in three weeks' time that the island of Mallorca will have two tons of that and 500 kilos of that waste and three tons of that waste. What can we make with that? And if it needs some rather special enzyme, we can make that enzyme in our lab and fly it into Mallorca because it's going to be about five kilos. We're not moving five tons of material around the world. We're moving five kilos for the special knowledge and enzymes to turn whatever those waste materials are into shampoo or into cleaning product. I love that idea. And at the moment, I'm working on designs of factories in Africa, working at village level. Village level is really small. So when we imagine factories, they don't really work at village levels. It's sort of the equivalent of about two full-time people made up of many people who are contributing to the actual operation of the factory. But what we're trying to design is a system where the people who work in that factory or with that factory forage. And the distance that we are calculating is really one day's ride on an electric bicycle because it's a solar-powered factory. So you, go, you can go away as far as one day and come back with materials. And what is it we can make in that factory next Thursday? That's incredibly advanced for a factory in a village in Africa. 
but we're trying to do it, and we're trying to do it in hundreds. So I've got two final messages. I am very angry. Please don't ask any questions. <laughs> I, I'll probably just shout at you or something. Right? But I am also an optimist. If only we could learn how to stop doing stupid stuff, that gives us the momentum to go and do other things. And one of the reasons that gives us the momentum is that we have to learn how to change things. The thing I'm most worried about is our lack of experimenting. We are not trying new ideas fast enough in the world that I operate in, in industry, in business. If we do not experiment with three or four different ways of doing things, how can we learn which one is the best? And so if there's anything you can do when you leave this place is to encourage those of you who are in business and who know people who are in business, try something, try anything. The more you try, the more you learn, the more likely it is that we can come back here in 2050 and not be in a drowned field. Thank you very much. Steve, thank you. Um, thank, thank you very much indeed. The message is quite stark that you've laid out here um, for us all today. I mean, when we're talking about having to be four times more efficient than today by 2050, and yet you also are very clear that people carry on doing really stupid stuff, <laughs> that's, a, that's a real challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge to you in your work, but it's a challenge to others too. And it, I just wondered if you could... You, you've said about what makes you angry in this context, but what made you angry enough to pursue this area of research in which there are very few of you working? And how do you turn that anger and your optimism and passion into something where you can influence people who make decisions? How can you do that? Because it's all very well for you to be in Cambridge being angry and optimistic. But actually, if we don't then think about what governments need to do, what um, those organisations that support innovation need to do, yeah. your anger will be in research papers and not actually changing what we need to do for 2050. Uh, one of my friends said that you should always work with people whose soul is greater than their mortgage. And, and that's one of the, the opportunities that's made available to people who are academics. You get freedoms to do some of that. It's there with young people. And I'm sorry to be disparaging with this older audience. We have it, right? The people in this room have souls that are bigger than their mortgages. And we can take risks and do things and get out there and shout. Now, as an academic, I was able to invest time on what I thought was a little bit annoying you know, our waste in energy and water and materials. When I first started doing research of this sort, the climate science, etc., was much less advanced than it is today, and I thought we had 200 years to turn around the supertanker. And that would be fine. I would be one of the knowledge contributors to that process. That is insufficient anymore. We know how quick. It's no longer a supertanker metaphor. It's a car crash metaphor, and we are very close to the airbag going off. And if we're going to change something, we have to change things at a much greater speed. So um, what 
my research has allowed, has allowed me to do is to better understand that system. And we've largely done that in the shadows, in the quiet. Because for people to give us data, they have to trust us. And when I start putting slides up like this, it's tough for the people who are really fantastic at giving me their data. Be you, you can see the particular challenge there. But it's time. <coughs> and my soul is definitely bigger than my mortgage, uh, because I rent. Uh, you've seen the Cambridge house prices. And, and because of that, I can take this risk. I can take that data and information out there. What's shocking to me is how the political and business leaders react to something that is just so wasteful. They go, that's really fantastic information, Stephen, but we can't do anything about it. What we can do is build Hinkley C, mm -hmm. right? That's a decision-making process, we understand. We can take that through various acts and get signatures and make that happen. Stopping people doing stupid stuff, too difficult. But if you, if you look at the, um, all the examples of good practice that you put up there, are people doing very innovative things, actually in very small companies or companies that are struggling to get to market. Are there big companies uh, there at the moment who give you some optimism? in the context of their also being able to influence governments and policymakers, have done a full systems evaluation of what they do to mean, to mean that they don't just drive out efficiency as rhetoric, because we hear that every day on our television screens yeah. about increased efficiencies, but it often feels as though those efficiencies are meaningless because we've got no idea what base they are yeah. reduced from. But if you just take that system and value and technology approach, are there larger companies that give you hope anywhere in the world that have really gone back to basics in terms of how they deliver? I think there are individuals in those larger companies. There's some small hope and an example this morning. The messages from companies like Apple, Microsoft, um, IBM, about Trump's decision to move away from the Paris Agreement. They said, this is just wrong, and it's not helpful to the country, and it's not helpful to us as an organization. There is leadership in large organizations, um, too few. And what I'm observing, uh, and I'm going to apologize for this, the most hopeful thing that we work on are secret experiments that I'm not allowed to tell you about, because large companies are saying, I do want to start experimenting, but I don't want to do it in public. Mm. I, and part of my difficulty, I've got some really exciting stories I can't tell you about. <laughs> some of the retailers we're working with are going to make changes to the high street. And so I'm allowed to tell you about the 20 items one, because that's something they chose not to do uh, for a variety of reasons. But they are, do, they are trying to conduct experiments coming to a high street near you, very soon. In fact, some of you, anybody lives in Bristol, you may have seen some of our experiments in some of the shops in Bristol, you wouldn't have noticed. And that's one of the reasons why you run experiments that way. So later on, I might induce you into the room of secrets. Oh, that's next year's. <laughs> the angry man takes you into his room of secrets. <laughs> just, just before we bring the audience in, I just wanted to ask one other question, which is, you, you mentioned AI just in passing, um, artificial intelligence. And of course, one of the 
the big hopes, not least of 10-year-old boys around that I've met recently, is that actually there's going to be amazing things happening with robotics. But there's also a real fear in the sort of people debate that those amazing things happening with robotics, and you're talking about 300,000 jobs with more efficiency, for example, about whether or not jobs for humans are at risk with robotics or how we can live together to create more sustainable manufacturing future by 2050 that both picks up the climate change elements but also enables people to have a better quality of life in the work that they do. Are you, is, have you been working on, on those elements as well? I, I, I work around the globe. I work in countries where the daily wage is $2 or below and they are investing in robots at a greater speed than the UK has ever invested in robots. And we've got to be careful. Robots encompasses a whole bunch of technologies, yeah. really. So <clears throat> what we would call automation, a robot has some sort of anthropomorphic dimension. It looks like it's doing something very human. But we actually remove that, turn it into something that a machine can do. We would call it automation. Artificial intelligence is already writing draft legal contracts. I would suggest that governments need to put a simple number in their forward planning. Within 15 years, 90% of the current jobs of this type will go. 90%. That is a speed at which we've not undergone any previous technological revolution. And in the past, we've adapted. So computers came along. I remember my very first computer, I think it was 1972, and it needed a punch tape. And it just took forever, and it was the size of a room. That revolution is really decades long. And we have now absorbed that revolution, and there are still good jobs post that revolution. This revolution is going to happen at a speed faster than society will deal with it by accident. It must be dealt with by design. And I see very little sign that our political processes are dealing with this at the moment. It's one of my bigger worries. Thank you. Right, questions. Questions and comments from the audience. Um, can we have the lights up a bit? Can we start, start with the two there, please? And then over there. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Have you looked into the problem with the I want it and I want it now and the constant uh, promotion of being, things being delivered the next day so the cities are absolutely congested with polluting vans delivering the next day and encouraging the public that they don't need it and they don't need it next day? Shall I deal with that one? Th thank you. Um, the question I put quite it's not a question really. I saw it a few weeks ago in a financial report on a company that shares £650 million between 15 executives or asked the question, are you going to increase your production next year? The reply was, we haven't got the technical skills to do it. Now I suggest they put a bit of that £650 million training the staff. What do you think about that? <laughs> and one more over there. OK, a couple of short points, really. Um, I, I heard that you're very angry because we're doing stupid things, but you wouldn't have a job if we didn't. <laughs> so how about 99% angry and 1% grateful? <laughs> 
my second point is that uh, as an OAP, my wife and I get uh, a, a winter fuel allowance. It's a waste of money. Because wouldn't it be better spent on insulation? The house would be more comfortable and they'd save all that fuel allowance money in the near future. So what, why are the, the government insistent on paying people like us, whose soul is greater than their mortgage, money we don't need if the house is properly insulated? Okay. Steve, they're, all, they're really all wonderful questions. Let's see if we can do it in reverse order. I'm going to offer Jane an opportunity later on to answer what is quite a political question. Uh, but my, my view, I was talking with an MP once who said to me, Steve, you have to understand, it's much easier for me to get 10 uh, leaders of, it shows you the age, the regional development agencies into a room than all of the local councillors. So there's a quantity problem of implementation of policy. If it's much easier to offer everyone a fuel allowance because that's a single act conducted by a small number of civil servants under which you have a degree of control than to actually design a very effective insulation policy that can go out to thousands of individual houses. Jane is actually the architect of one of those really fantastic schemes, so I will encourage you to answer that. But, I, but this is the political problem that, as it's been told to me, it's much easier for, political, for politicians to spend more money to do single acts with a larger brush. And I, and I, I will attempt to be 1% grateful. <laughs> Thanks, Amir. Um, I, I think that uh, I'm trying not to put my politics out here too much. And I would personally love to become inordinately wealthy. Uh, I've really taken some very bad decisions in that direction. But I do think that the equity gap, the idea that the profit that we generate being reinvested rather than offered to either shareholders or executives in excessive, what I view as excessive quantities, is not good for the sustainability of those organizations. And when you look at the long-term organizations, they have calculated the way in which they reinvest. One of, I, I've never worked for them. I don't have big connections to them. One of the organizations I love most in the world is IBM. They've survived seven death moments since beginning as a typewriter manufacturer. And they've survived them all. And part of that is their massive investment in people and knowledge and R&D. And they've been able to be flexible because they have that strength. And when we become anorexic, it's very difficult to deal with change. Excellent question. I hope there's a partial answer. Um, my personal instinct is not to deny people uh, the desire to be monkeys, you know, or magpies. Ooh, that's shiny, I want one. I think I don't have the competence to, to stop people behaving that way. And uh, I'm a black belt at judo. I prefer to use the judo technique of using that against them and say, can we take you on a journey? Can I give you that rapid renewal but in a way that means we can grow half the cotton in the world. And I think we've got to engage our ingenious brains to do that. And I've suggested that there are mechanisms with which we can do that. So try some judo is, is, is going to be my advice <laughs> want, on that one. Want judo now. <laughs> right, a few more. Um, 
can we take the, the gentleman there um, and lady here in the front row and uh, lady in the, in the uh, about four rows back, please. Economists rightly believe that markets largely work with a few phrases like long-run marginal cost equaling price. Uh, and in effect, the environment is giving a huge subsidy to the consumption of the Western world. You said perhaps the Eastern world will catch up as well. And the only guardian against that subsidy is our, our governments. But governments stand for re-election. They would find it very difficult, for example, to solve the problem of air quality in our streets by saying that every year for the next 10 years, the tax on diesel fuel will go up by 20%. It would be very unpopular to be a raid on the motorist. How, in a democracy, can we protect the environment? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm interested in high-performance culture and the uh, wastage that comes from not having a good diversity of staff, so more women in engineering and in manufacturing. Um, can you say anything about whether you've looked at that aspect or whether you're concentrating more on the, the kind of the, the, the physical resources, the water waste and whatever? Okay. And um, lady in the uh, fourth and fifth row that is there. Hello. Um, you asked us at the beginning which makes, what makes us angry, and of course I'm angry my country has withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, and this goes sort of to the gentleman's first question, that perhaps there's optimism um, out there in that we can try to create change without governments, and that shows the profitability of efficiency. So I'm wondering that sort of in this environment, is that where we can find optimism? Is there's ways that can be go around the political system, or, or is that impossible? Okay. I think the two questions are somewhat connected. Um, one of the arguments is that politicians should internalize the market failure, in particular the spending of natural capital to deliver economic capital in a way that cannot be sustained. Um, and there are many people who theorize, you know, what's the right cost of carbon? As I understand it, and it's my view, it's a very personal view, it's, it's not my uh, dominant research area, the true cost of carbon to achieve that would be about 100 to $120 a tonne, and at the moment, I don't see any political will to do that. But what we are seeing is organizations taking action, and I fear that governments are not joining in the movements, and that's the most retrograde step that we've heard today, is that Trump is not working with those organizations in the US that are trying to change things. And one of the big changes we're going to have to see in the future, if we're going to answer your question, sir, is governments ha learning how to work well with the other actors in the system, and rather than be separated from. And, and the systems thinking uh, approach has to happen. Governments are not very good at that. They like to split things up and make them uh, small and simple. And I, that's also a lead on. If you're going to be good at systems thinking, uh, out. Part of my research is multidisciplinary uh, performance environments, and it is very clear that you need certain conditions. People who understand systems, people who can 
work in common languages. And I think that we've been given the most strong indication. Economists think X. Whenever I work with government, London especially, the phrase, could you explain that in terms of market failure, Stephen? And I go, what, I'm not an economist. You are, could you? I've just shown you the failure. Could you explain it in terms of market failure? And it drives me nuts. It's like, you want me to become an economist in order to hold an equal conversation with you, but you've got 20 years of training. You will always beat me in an argument. And if we are going to get high performance environments and systems thinking and government working with business, we have to learn a new Esperanto-like common language. And that comes from systems thinking, I believe. And one of the things we've got to dump very quickly is the phrase market failure. Because I don't know many markets that work. I'm going to be really rude. I think that possibly drugs and prostitution. Uh, because they're not regulated. Yeah, uncontrolled. Right? And there are true market behaviors in those environments. And there are very few real markets which follow the theory. Right, we have a very, very quick round before we finish. Gentlemen in the middle over there. I just want to make sure I've, I've caught anybody at the back. Yes, up there in the back in red um, as well. And sorry, yes, please, at the front. Right. I get really fed up when people tell me what the right answer is. And so often we're dealing with what I would call a true dilemma, which is whatever you choose for, you still have a duty of care for the unchosen, what you didn't choose for. And how can we get people to start thinking about the best answers and in dealing in longer time frames? And I go back to the, if politicians are going to change every five years, then it's about time we had some better civil servants in order to actually smooth some of that crap over so that we can start making decisions that handle dilemmas and optimize rather than saying this is right, this is wrong. Thank you. Um, gentleman in the red and then microphone down to the front row, please. Thank you, um, Steve. Great talk. Um, personally, I think the system is broken. Um, and my question is, I'm sold on doing something, um, and I just feel I'm not sure where to start, because we're, we are in the system. And because of that, I think it's very, very difficult to yeah. alter it from within. It's obviously broken. And I can see it going over the cliff you know, in four years' time, when Brexit finally kicks in. Thank, thank you. And uh, one of my pet hates is food waste, and another gripe is such a waste of money when they repair the potholes by sticking a load of stuff in, and six weeks later it's come out again because they can't be bothered to do it properly. It's so wasteful. Thank you very much. So I'm going to use that example to try and enter into this conversation. Um, not an expert on local government financing, but in our world, we separate very much between shorthand, what we call capex and opex, capital expenditure and operational expenditure. In the business world, I can move money between those by having a discussion with my CEO. In the political world, 
it's very hard to move money from one of those systems to the other system. So people are often very limited in their operational expenditure budget, which is the one that fills potholes. And they know they're not building long-term solutions, but they also know they're not getting access to the type of budget that would allow them to invest in longer-term solutions. And that's an example of the systems thinking failure, which the gentleman was uh, referring to. I believe that we have a... I'm, I'm going to try and uh, respond, but I think it's an immensely large question, the failure and the frustrations uh, that you have. I hope that you sense that I share some of those. I would like us to franchise our politicians to be innovative. And I'm afraid at the moment we as citizens are really bad at this. We want our politicians to know the answer. When we're having a debate, Mr. Evans, what's the problem with cat poo? I want an answer. I don't want somebody who stands up and says, well, we don't know, but we're going to have an experiment and try two or three different ways. This is part of our contribution to enabling those people to join in experimenting and looking for new answers. So I'm, I'm going to try and accept some degree of responsibility for this. I would also suggest that politicians themselves have to learn how to communicate in a way which seems less certain but is nevertheless able to be voted for. <laughs> and I think in that, one minute. I think, that, I think that's an enormous challenge. We might leave the politician to show us the, the skill of doing that. Sir, I don't know the answer to your question. It is an unbelievably wonderful question. Thank you for it. What can we do as individuals when we are small items in very large and complex systems? Please can we talk about, I'm willing for things to fail. I'm willing for... Marks and Spencers to try something which isn't quite right. I am willing for Tesco to try something which isn't quite right. I'm not going to run away from the store at the first hint that it doesn't quite match my uh, aspirations anymore. The same for our politicians. If we do not enable their experimenting, they will not experiment. And if we don't try new things, we're not going to get new things. Um, Steve, thank you. Thank, thank you very much indeed. I've been outed. I would, I'm here <laughs> as the uh, Pro Vice-Chancellor responsible for sustainability, but um, I know from some of the faces I've seen in the audience that um, uh, for t uh, 12 years I was a minister here in Wales. And one of the acts I was able to put in, uh, or put the proposal forward for, um, we're going to discuss at one o'clock, which is Wales is now the only country in the world to try and take a systems approach to sustainability. And we introduced a Wellbeing for Future Generations Act, uh, which is celebrating its first anniversary this week. And at one o'clock, I'm interviewing the Wellbeing for Future Generations Commissioner in Wales. And that act is about how we take an experimental and innovative approach to tackling a systems view of public services in Wales. So that is one kind of innovation. We don't know how it's going to work. But in thanking Steve today, because I think Steve has the most enormous intellect and brain, and I love the fact that he comes with a passion that I hope continues to make us angry and demand more of our academics and more of our civil servants and more of our politicians in tackling that interrelationship between the single planet that we live on and all the decisions 
that are taken around it. And I just want to finish uh, with Satish Kumar, who once, I think, quite imaginatively said that uh, the words economy and ecology come from the same root. Uh, ecos, uh, the planet home. Ology is the knowledge of. Onomy is the management of. And yet we teach economy separate for ecology. We allow people to manage without understanding. That has to end. And what Steve has shown today is there are academics out there demonstrating that can be done. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.